from newbies to fanatics we are now spoiler free podcast so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen i'm one of your hosts rye and i'm your other host chris i got a bone to pick with you sir oh okay let's we're just getting right into it okay you shat all over suspiria you hated that movie Last Night in Soho is a love letter to Suspiria, and I want to flip the table right now. I'm so angry. <laughs> I am so fucking angry right now. I mean... Anybody who listened to our Suspiria episode knows that this was what was going to happen. We were going to do Last Night in Soho, and I made a joke on the episode <laughs> that I wasn't going to say anything to Chris, that I was going to look like I hated it. <laughs> On the off chance, I loved it, okay? I'll bury that. Yeah, you did. But I'm mad at Chris. <laughs> I'm so angry at Chris because it's a giant love letter to Suspiria and Dario Argento, and he hated Suspiria. I, okay, okay. Let's let's put this on the record. I never said hated it. I never what? said I hated Suspiria. I said, I said, quote, I said I didn't like it as much as I thought I did. Oh, no, 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 you did worse. You said with a magnitude of shade, this is the most influential film of the subgenre. That's what you said. <laughs> you put so much sass in, in, my, in, in my dramatic reenactment. I love it. It was great. I did. I love you, but fuck you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so after watching Last Night in Soho, uh, I feel hopeful that I can get you back with with the Italian with Giallo, but it is blasphemous that you did. And I really think it's because I jumped the gun, especially after watching Last Night in Soho and reading about how Edgar Wright feels about Giallo movies. <laughs> I definitely jumped the gun with Suspiria, and I I recognize that now, and that was my fault. I told you that was ripping the Band-Aid off, and I did it. It was wrong. It was wrong. I should have done this better. You threw him into the pool. You threw him in the pool. But it's a giant love letter to Suspiria and Dario Argento, <laughs> and it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. All right. I'm not defending myself, but the two main reasons why, I guess may, maybe two, maybe three. I don't know. I'll, I'll count. But one, I love Edgar Wright so incredibly much. So, like, I'm, like, I, I you know, I've... I've watched so many documentaries about Edgar Wright, all these, all, all, pretty much every interview about any of his films, you know, I've watched it. I would say I'm, I wasn't like a dyed in the cloth fan from the very beginning. I kind of missed the boat on Shaun of the Dead. I, uh, I, I was like really hooked on Hot Fuzz and then I then absorbed Shaun of the Dead. And then Edgar Wright's... Oh, and then The World's End, incredible. The World's End got so much hate. If we do... It's not exactly a horror film, but if we do, like, a separate episode about World's End, I have, like, monologues and tirades about how wrong people are. And I could, I would argue, like, The World's End is probably, like, one of the best and most mature of that trilogy. But that's just... But I don't, I don't want to go on a rant on that yet. Um, but... 
But like in between like uh, Hot Fuzz and like uh, and World's End, I got onto his deep dive. I explored uh, Spaced, his amazing TV show run, which led to a lot of the sensibilities and jokes and even casting for so many of his films, especially for the Cornetto trilogy. Um, Baby Driver, incredible. Paul, really fun. I still haven't seen it. Baby Driver? Holy shit. Baby Driver's really good. I've heard I've heard amazing things about the movie. I was very ready to watch it. And then uh, the Kevin Spacey allegations came uh, out. And I felt really dirty wanting to watch it after that. But I was like, I, I still heard it's like a masterpiece. Everything that he does with shot setup and the music. Yes. And everything like that. Like, I'm going to watch it eventually. Uh, I do feel a little sad that I haven't seen it yet. But I did see Last Night in Soho. And yes, Chris, you were right. Yes. It was a fucking incredible movie. It was so good. It was so yes. good. I thought I had the ending of that. I, re- I was texting Chris while I was watching it. And I thought, I really thought I had the ending. I didn't. And I'm so happy I didn't. Yes. That's like my second reason. Like, it is so interesting. And the pacing is it, like, you, I mean, we were talking about it during the Baba f- episode. I love a good whodunit mystery. And, you know, this... This movie, like, and this is all before we 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 have ever even considered doing GL. Well, I guess we were we wanted to do GL films on this podcast for a while. You had mentioned last night in Soho on a couple of previous episodes that had even before we did Giallo anything. So yeah, you've been on this. Yeah, I I saw this like I saw this movie day one. Like th- this came out uh, September fourth, twenty twenty one. So uh, like. A little bit less than about a year ago, almost give it give or take like a week. Um, but I saw this day one, incredible film, and you know this was also Edgar Wright's full, first actual foray into horror, or you know maybe this is closer to psychological thriller. But you know I was excited. I was so excited. It's like it's like a noir. It's a it's definitely a thriller. It was basically like Italian horror vomited all over this movie. And it was part of why I sort of felt hopeful because a lot of the themes that thread through this movie are in giallo movies. And I read a really great article where uh Edgar Wright talks about his personal favorite giallo movie is the ones that he really enjoyed that sort of helped point him to influence this movie. And that is part of the reason why I'm apologizing and saying that I ripped the bandaid off too soon and threw you into Suspiria way too fast because some of the other movies that he mentions, um, whether it's Argento or Bava, I know I want to get to eventually, but we should have done them first. I love it more because it's an Edgar Wright film. But... But that being said, you love this movie, and it was—it's yeah. a giant <laughs> love letter to Giallo. Anybody that is calling this a modern Giallo movie, I think, is accurate. But it's also like a giant love letter to Giallo movies, and it makes me really happy to see a modern director take it and do what he did with it. It was so awesome and so refreshing, and. I mean, like I said, literally, just like a, it was like he vomited all over this movie in a good way. Like it was just like a giant love letter. It was so, it was so, per- it was so good. So, 
Woo! So perfect. I can't, I can't say, I, I won't say anything bad about it because I can't. I think there's one nitpick thing that I, I, I have with this film. I would love to hear what you have to nitpick about this movie. No, but this this is like the the smallest hair split of a nitpick, but otherwise, you know, this is this is a perfect film. Tell me. Um, so, so like, okay, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Oh, before we get nitpicky, we're gonna give you a synopsis. I forgot, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. This is a synopsis from IMDb. An acclaimed director, Edgar Wright's psychological thriller, Eloise, or Ellie, an aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer, Sandy. But the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something far darker. That's a really nice synopsis, actually. That is it's very nice. Um, directed... It's very delicate, and this movie is not that delicate. <laughs> it's it's brutal we'll we'll get into it um but yeah directed by edgar wright screenplay by edgar wright and christy wilson carnes um an ensemble cast my gosh this movie is so stacked as thomas and mckenzie is ellie anya taylor joy is sandy the weasley twins diana rigg of james bond fame and game of thrones fame as miss collins this was her last movie yeah, this is yeah. This movie was dedicated to Diana Rigg, Riggs. I'm sorry, as well as Margaret Nolan, who played like the very spunky uh, bar t- bar owner. Oh, I liked her. Yeah, she was great. Her role was uncredited. Like her role is called like Sage Barmaid. So I wish she had a. I wish she had an actual name. But you have Matt Smith as Jack, Terrence Stamp. You know, also incredible uh, actor. Um, you know, most well-known at from uh, General Zod from the Superman movies. Uh, Sam Cleafin, or Claffin. Again, star-studded cast. My goodness. Did you want me to jump ahead to the to the nitpicky stuff? Yeah. Okay, so my thought after the second rewatch is thinking about it more of the genre and the cinematic predecessor of Giallo, you know, making, you know, now that I know more about it, it, it makes more sense. Like, this movie has, like, this dreamlike quality like you could also think of it as like a dark fairy tale slash be careful what you wish for type kind of story so like the the lines between like reality and and, and dreams blur a lot in this film uh so my thought at the end of this film is like and i, I guess like it, it's boring it's probably not like good cinema to, to explain that i mean Edgar Wright like is very clean and efficient about the pacing and what is included and what was cut out. But I thought like all this time, well, like how did, uh, how did like Thomason or Ellie get away scot free? I mean, she almost killed her classmate with a pair of scissors. She was tied to like the death of Lindsay or the quote the silver haired gentleman. You know, she was involved in fire. And like, how did she? I, I, how did she get? A, like, there. Uh, it seemed too good to be true. Like, that she got away. Like, too much of a happy ending. But I don't know. That that is like the biggest. I was just curious. Like, how did she not have any consequences or repercussions? Or did peep the did the police follow up with her? Like, are you actually 
mentally ill? Did you need help? Because she was cast off as an unreliable narrator throughout the entire story. And, and so it's not quite sure if it's like mental health or this actual supernatural element that's going on where she could see her mother and she, she could see Sandy or it's a bit of both. Um, I'm just really curious, like, but this is me, like, trying to pull on that string on the internal logic of this world. If this was, like, real-life London, like, how did she, like, get away with, like, quote-unquote zero consequences? But, again, smallest of the smallest, like, nitpicking. I love this film. So, I gotta, I have a couple of, I have a couple of things for that, though, because I was thinking about this. So, Edgar Wright says that the ending is ambiguous, sort of on purpose, um, which I love, but I didn't find it just ambiguous. I found that there were a couple of different like ways that you could look at it. So we know why she's wearing a glove at the end of the movie to cover up the cut that she has on her hand from doing exactly what Sandy did, which is catch the knife. But I, I think realistically from her perspective, she didn't drug herself. Her landlady drugged her tea yeah. and she has a friend who magically survived that can back up the, her story that her landlady, like, stabbed them both and, like, went after them both. That's the only thing that really, like, if he hadn't survived, it would have been a very different movie. Also, I guess, I guess in the fire, I mean, they, they'll probably recover Miss Collins' body. Spoilers. Spoilers, <laughs> by the way. Spoilers, I'm so sorry. Um, but also, the, the, in the, I guess in the criminal forensic process they would have dug up all the bones and bodies of the missing persons as well that's why she never left that's why she never sold the because all the bodies are buried in the walls i i love so much foreshadowing and sprinkling on the second rewatch like like that line where she says oh yeah i would never sell like too many memories and the fact that like she has like all these all this dirty laundry locked in the floorboards like oh Clever dialogue. I love it. So good. For me, for me, what dawned on me after the fact was the lines that they kept coming back to about ghosts and about Eloise's gift. And Edgar Wright and his uh, co-writer both agree that it's supernatural, that she, like, truly does have this gift. I... I don't doubt that she has a supernatural gift, but I'm wondering if also, like, if the house just has, like, this supernatural aura just because of all, like, the negative emotions and all the dead bodies and all, like, the, the anguished people of the dead suitors. Because there was another interesting theory where uh, Miss Collins mentioned the reason why she asked for two months rent deposit is because so many girls like Ellie just ran out in the middle of the night, which makes me wonder if other girls were haunted by staying in the same room. So uh, what is your theory on that? Or did like Miss Collins just like, just chase him out, you know, and she, she was just clearly lying. I don't know. I think that, I think it can, I think you can see it both ways. I think there's an argument to be made that with the very specific rules she has in place, she might have put in place to protect herself from the ghosts of her past, which is all the men that died in there, but also in an effort to sort of protect the girls that come in that she feels were like her, kind of like Eloise. Because her and Eloise have that understanding. They have that, like, I know, like, I get it. And I think that that's sort of, I think when she first comes to London and she's in the back of that cab 
and she says she doesn't have enough money to go that far and he says oh i'm sure we can come to some arrangement like i'm sure he meant it we don't know i'm not gonna say i'm sure because i don't but i've been a woman alone in the back of a cab like that before you don't know the intention and sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's actually quite malicious and between that kind of nature and meeting someone the way she met Jack back in the 60s, how he was like, I can get you anything and turned into what it turned into. I think, it, I honestly think it could go both ways. I don't know if she necessarily was lying. I don't know. Just sorry to go on a quick tangent, but that one interaction Ellie had with the creepy taxi driver, that's kind of inspired by a real event. So co the co-writer, Christy Wilson-Carnes, so she she grew up in London. I, I don't remember. She spent a lot of her time like working at the Toucan, which is like, the, it's like an actual bar in Soho. And she, so she worked a, a lot and lived a lot uh, in Soho uh, as a young woman. So that, that experience with the taxi driver and the alpha pickup lines was biographical. Like she did experience that. I believe it. So I think that they, they have... They have this connection, but I don't, I don't know. Talking about like these supernatural elements, which is really cool. Uh, you know, going back to Chialo, you know, you have like these two camps that we were talking about, you know, like the, the whodunit, the mystery, some of these more supernatural elements. And this is like a nice fusion of the two. It, it blends really well. And the fact it, it, it just, using the story device of dreams and like time travel as to move the story forward and the comfort, just ingenious. I don't necessarily think the true horror of this film is necessarily like all the ghosts. Uh, obviously, like I mean, there I mean, it asks for it, it creates like cool jump scare moments, but I think the true horror, and it's so like expertly done, but it's not portrayed like deliberately in your face. It's, just, it's like subtle under the surface, but it just permeates. It's so so expertly crafted is like the fact that the the real horror of the story is ellie you know being this person who clearly loves the 60s loves that culture has a very romanticized version of that lifestyle and everyone around her is telling her oh be careful uh london's london's a dangerous place London's not actually like this. And Ellie experiences that in like the most harrowing, harrowing, like terrifying experience possible where like you have this love for this era that you've never been in. But like, and you get your, like that be careful what you wish for thing comes true where she, in her, in her, in her dream state, she experiences the 60s and she thinks it's everything she wanted. But She's ending up in this time and place where as a woman, it is by far, far more terrifying, far more oppressive to live as a woman. And it's a story about like predatory behavior and, and how this breaks so many women. It breaks Sandy in, in where she, like Ellie, had hopes and dreams and so much optimism. And it turned her into a, a monster. I mean, she's clearly right she's completely justified completely um to like act out in that way to kill all those men but you know as they say it constantly in the movie sandy in a way did die and you know she sandy died she became a killer and i found that so 
incredibly powerful and so heart-wrenchingly tragic. And, and we were talking about it, Rai, like that shot where Sandy's sitting on the bed as the flames of the room. It was just like, oh, just like, just like everything, everything that was leading to that moment of like pure tragedy. And it's like, it's so beautiful and so haunting. So, sorry, that was a long rant. No, no, no. As a, as a woman watching this movie, the way I feel about it, the way I took all of this is the real, for me, again, this is just me speaking, the real horror of Last Night in Soho is that nothing really changes. Some things change, but nothing really changes. Which the cabbie also did say, like, you were here when you were seven, but London changes, but doesn't change that much. And I think think to go a step further the sort of giallo nod that i saw at the end of the movie that's sort of like again for me tied that whole theory together is sandy's wearing a white glove at the end of the movie and we know why but and she sees sandy in the reflection the same way she sees her mom and yes there's a whole i have a whole other thing about the ghosts as like a theme in this movie that's not what I'm talking about right now. When she sees Sandy in the reflection of the mirror and she's staring there with the glove in her hand, it is a very common trope in Giallo movies to be stalked by the black by the black gloved killer. So for me, I just went through, oh, here we go again. Like it changes, but it doesn't change that much. So it sort of felt to me like she took all of this into her and she's happy right now again like she's wearing that glove she's seeing sandy in the mirror that's just the way i took it that experience could have very well have turned her into another sandy it could very well have turned her into a killer we have no idea but again it's that ambiguity that edgar wright said he intentionally left in there that i think makes for a great film your personal interpretation of this is just as valid as mine and just as valid as the next person's which is what makes it successful it's what makes it so fucking good hell yeah and that's what i love about edgar wright films they're, they're so smart and they they're just so well crafted and they don't over explain and they give you like these like these like these pieces of world building or lore and you know it, it's just like ah oh, it's just he's true masterclass writer and like not just not i mean the entire team the entire team that worked on this just firing on all cylinders i want i wanted to because i've seen this before right uh and bef- prior to this the only thing you have seen was the the puppet on the strings clip. So I'm like really I'm really before we get to your notes, I really want to get like your introspective on like your thoughts before. So I'm really happy I had no context before that. Cuz it was I didn't realize how soon into the movie it was like I know you said it but watching it and experiencing it is very different and I knew so when we, the first time we meet Matt Smith's character as soon as we meet Matt Smith I'm like this bitch is trouble I just read off the bat you're fucking trouble man you're two-faced I don't trust you but watching the puppet on a string like with the bookends of the film in general and like having seen the rest of that clip now i don't find it as entertaining as i did when i first watched it on youtube like i just thought it was fun <laughs> it's not fun oh okay because it was out of context and it was like that scene is so trippy and so like out there like the coloring is all weird it has like this purplish pinkish tinge to it and then you have like anya Ta- taylor joy like her crazy 
performance just so freaking good. And like you have all like these robo- like these robotic men in the crowd just clapping in unison and look it's entertaining but like slightly creepy. Oh, not even not even the clapping in unison. Um I noticed this and I had to rewind it to make sure I heard it correctly. Um, not only do you have them clapping in unison like a bunch of fucking toy monkeys, while they're on the stage and they're doing their thing, when she get when Eloise gets up and walks away to go up the stairs before it changes, you can hear them all saying, on beat, walk, 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 as they're turning around and walking away so everyone sees their ass, because they're all a bunch of fucking perverts. But that scene for me also, I and I think I sent you my little like notepad on this, I was like, Puppet on a String is definitely meant to indicate that like Matt Smith is pulling all the strings, which for Sandy's life, he absolutely is. But there's also... There was also a bigger picture for that. I th- I very incorrectly thought, and I don't, I'm not saying I guess every fucking ending to a movie that we watch. I was so wrong about this movie and I was so okay with it. I love that because it really took me by surprise. I was so sure that some of the uh, older people that we were seeing in present day were puppets on a string, but it's really, it's Sandy the whole time. She's treating everybody like puppets on a string after that. And I'm not saying that that Edgar, like I'm not saying Edgar Wright did that on purpose, but I think he did that on purpose. Like he chose specific songs for this movie very deliberately. And I have to think that that was also one of them. Yeah, I mean like in all of his movies, he's very particular about music. Like that is a a true hallmark of his filmmaking style i want to see him do not necessarily something else like this um one of the articles that i read about this movie was he was saying that this movie was sort of manifesting in the back of his brain before he did baby driver and then baby driver came out and a lot of people reacted negatively to the female representation in this and they praised him for the female representation in this movie and he was basically like that was not it it wasn't a response to what people said about baby driver i had this in my head me having this be about two women and having a female co-writer is not a response to that and i think that that says a lot about how he thinks and like who he is and i think that that is a really important thing to point out as a male director when you're doing something like this that is about the female perspective I think it's really important to say, I didn't do this as a response to your negativity about female representation. Because oftentimes that can come across as pandering, I think, as a female member of the audience. And I hate shit like that. Like, don't pander to me. Just be better. I'm not going to get all, like, feminist on any of this because it's not the point. But I thought it was really fucking well done. And I love the fact that it is focused on on two women. And I love that there is this constant thread of... Is it ghosts or mental illness the whole time and how it plays off of each other? And really, it just sort of echoes. Yes, Eloise is haunted by ghosts. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of ghost theme in this movie. But Sandy is, too. I can't say anything bad about this movie. I don't want to try to. And I think if I did, I would fail. It's it's so good. Even you trying to nitpick shit at the end. I, you know, for me, I, I can't say anything bad about it. It's so good. I understand. Like it is, it is the smallest nth degree of like nitpicking. But it's not even the smallest nth degree. Like when that came up, I, I was gut reacting while I was watching it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to swallow this. I'm just going to wait for the movie to be over. When the movie was over, I was like, oh, okay. I, felt myself trying to get nitpicky in the moment but after i had a second i was like i'm not gonna get nitpicky about this like 
I love your nitpicky shit. That, you know what? It works. But I think the saving grace, and again, this is just how much ambiguity Edgar Wright chose to leave with this movie. The save, the logic, the quote unquote logical saving grace of that ending moment is the fact that her friend is alive. Yeah. Because that's her alibi right there. Yeah. From a theatrical and like fantasy perspective, that's where I can't, that's where I go with the whole white glove, black glove thing. That's where I go. It's, it's about things changing, but not changing that much. And history is bound to repeat itself. Did this situation turn her into a killer the way it turned Sandy into a killer? And I think that is an interesting thought to be left with. I don't think it villainizes her. I think no, she just makes her, it makes her a complex character. Yeah. Hopefully, if she did turn into a killer, though, I would like to think she would learn from Sandy in that she would not bury the bodies in the walls of the house she lived in. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's interesting. I can't even imagine what that would have smelt like growing up in the 60s. Like, I have to actually, you know what, now that I think about it, I don't know how long that French bistro has been there, but the fact that she made a point to say that it smells like garlic and pretty soon that's all you smell, that's a nice cover. I'm pretty sure the French bistro might have still been there. I don't, it's a little bit fuzzy. But now I'm gaslighting myself. I don't think the, the bistro was there in the 60s. But it's a, it's a great alibi. There's also another super clever line where Miss Collins says, Oh yeah, don't mind in, in the summer, it, it, it begins to smell because of the pipes. So, like, she says a line similar to that. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, it smells because it's, it's London and it, it gets hot and there's dead people on the walls. Like, oh, anchor right. You're you're literally cooking death in yeah. the walls, and it yeah. smells. It's amazing. Even old dust and bones. So good. So okay, so here's the thing. No, it's no, it's no, it's your conspiracy board. <laughs> it's not. Well, no, my conspiracy board is on my phone. So can we fucking talk about the geniusness of the cinematography of this movie? <gasps> yes. Uh. Yes. I was gonna, I was, I was, I wanted to talk about this so much. The dance scene, I know how they did it and it was fucking, I was watching behind all the All practical, scenes of like all practical effects. Oh yeah, of how they constructed all of the shots. I think my favorite one is the use of mirror choreography that he uses constantly in this movie where they are both very, very present in the room, but he uses green screen to sort of like help with everything. So that great shot of when Sandy, the first time Eloise comes into the 60s and Sandy meets Jack for the first time and they're standing in front of the mirror. They're both standing right there. There's a green screen behind Thomason and she's standing there. Yeah, she's just behind Thomason. Yeah, and she's standing there. It's like a direct reflection. It's so, it's so beautifully done and so masterfully done. And he does the same thing for the mirror scene when she first comes in and that's where the Weasley twins come in because there's no actual mirror there. They're actually touching fingertips. That's, that's real contact. Yeah. And I think it's the little touches like that, that really just ramp up and just only add to this movie. And the thing is like, I, I love in that interview, people were asking like, or like the fans are getting so many comments. Like, is this, is this CGI? Is this, what is this? And it's like, Edgar Wright's like, no, I, we just hired a really amazing director of photography who has such insane muscle memory. He could duplicate the shots perfectly because like that, that dance scene, like it's all essentially one take with that one steady cam, but five very clever Texas 
switch shots as like but like you would think like how is he doing it but it's and it's just and it's just for the beginning of that dance scene because after that twirling shot happens it's a single take and it's literally just the two actresses switching out underneath the camera that's all it is and I say that's all it is, but I've seen the, I think it's either the B or the C cam shot of them shooting it where you just watch them running around <laughs> each other on the dance floor. And it's a, it's a lot of work, but that shot pays off. It is so wonderfully done. But it's also like, a hundred percent, it is Edgar Wright. Cause like you use CGI as a tool, but like he has such this unique vision of like manipulating and using the camera as as a character in itself. And it's just like, oh my God. When I first saw that in theaters, I, I was like, my jaw dropped. Like, how is he doing this? Incredible. I also like fun tidbit about this. That whole first sequence of her entering Cafe de Perry was done on Haymarket Street in London. And Edgar Wright said that he had to give the city of Westminster five months notice to do that shot because they basically like shut down that street with period actors and period cars. And there was like a little bit of CGI in the back of like 1965 Piccadilly Circus. That's incredible. And and I love the artistic vision for him. It's like we have to do it. It has to look authentic. Like we can't we can't just build a set and use green screens. Like it's like not. It's like like oh yes, Edgar Wright. Yes, yes. You are you are. I love you for that. You could feel how enamored she was with the sixties when you first see it of her just like walking around and staring up at everything, and it very much highlights this like romanticizing of the past when we first meet Eloise. And I think this goes back to what I said about things changing, but not that much. She's romanticizing a time period that wasn't necessarily any better than her own. And she learns that by going through Sandy's, albeit very unreliable, memories. Sandy is just as much of an unreliable narrator as Eloise, and Eloise isn't even that unreliable because she's seeing what she thinks is, like, real. Or, like, what Sandy's, Sandy's memories and energy is like feeding her so if anything sandy is the real obviously sandy's the real unreliable narrator here she she pulled the wool over everyone's eyes she's a smooth operator that's right she's a very smooth operator but I, I i think uh a lot a lot of what i took away from this movie was this theme of ghosts and this learning to live with your demons your your spirits your ghosts as part of like your livelihood, but also is like the horror of the legacy that you made for yourself. For Eloise, it's this literal ghost of her mother, but it's also the ghost of her mother's legacy, like looming over her the entire movie. Like everyone thinks she's nuts because she told everyone that her mom was unstable and killed herself. Then there's like the actual ghosts in the house because Sandy had dead bodies in the wall. Then there's also this theme of, like, the spirits of, like, the older age of, like, the 60s and stuff like that. And how, like, the past, like, dies but it doesn't go away. Which is, again, why I feel really solid in saying that, like, history is doomed to repeat itself. And Eloise could very well turn into another Sandy at the end of the movie. Which is how I completely took all of that. I didn't think 
this is jumping ahead. I didn't think the ending. I mean, it was definitely ambiguous. I don't think it was sinister though. No, I don't think it's sinister at all. I mean, she blows her a kiss, but there's there's two there's two ways you could look at it. You could look at it as history could be doomed to repeat itself, or you could sort of look at it as this acceptance of the legacies and the ghosts that they laid out in the film. Like she doesn't have to. Like, she doesn't have to do things. She doesn't have to live for her mother anymore. She can live for herself. She can acknowledge the fact that she is influenced by the 60s and likes them, but she doesn't have to overly romanticize it and, like, wish she was there. Yeah. I I, I get, like, this ending is, like, a Rorschach test. I was never very good at those. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I think the ending to me is, like, what was her exact... Or Sandy's exact... She, like, blew her a kiss and waved, right? I thought she blew her a kiss and she, like, winked. Or, or something like that. I To me, I that thought, like... I think she was, like, uh, like I see you. I thought it was, like, a... a think of a... I think it was, like, a common understanding. Because, like, Eloise and Sandy, they... I think more than anyone in her life, I think Sandy, in her final moments, found someone who actually empathized with her and i mean yes sandy didn't want to get caught she didn't want to be in prison um but at the same time i think she wanted ellie to live uh and she saw a lot of herself in ellie and it's like yeah yes go save yourself save the boy and i think that final scene is like is like wink okay yes uh we're we're cool now uh and and but doesn't doesn't old Sandy also say something to her about like to stop living in the past or something like that when she shoves her out the door? I don't remember. I think I just remember her saying like save yourself. Uh I've been living in the prison all my life. Save the or boy. Like, yes. Yeah. I don't remember uh, that. Something like that, yeah. Um but and I think I think Ellie's a lot less likely to become I mean I, I granted this is a, a purely out of my ass and like pure extrapolation you know life is very complicated and can change on a dime but i don't think personally ellie's gonna go down that path because unlike sandy she has she has an actual support network she has her mom or grandma uh she has uh john her boyfriend um i mean uh she's getting the respect of her peers finally for like in true meritocracy. Jocasta, like, I don't know what's her deal at the end. She hated her from the beginning. She's one of those, like, like one of those, like, rich bitches that, like, doesn't like anybody. But her other two girlfriends, who I noticed were not standing by Jocasta's side, they were like, you're so brave. You're so brave. Yeah, I was, in the second rewatch, I was trying to, like, I was trying to rewatch, like, um, Ellie, like, Ellie and Jocasta, like, glance at each other for a brief moment. And I don't know if, like, Jocasta is, like, we're not, we're not best friends anymore. We're, we're not going to be best friends, but at least I respect you. Or I don't know if Jocasta still has, like, a grudge against her or not. Like, I don't know. It was one of those things where it's, like, I respect the talent you have, but I don't like you as a person. Yeah, which is, like, I think as good as a result that could happen for Ellie. But hey, overall, I think Ellie is in a much better space. Oh, and she has like, the respect of her teacher, 
Her teacher's obviously very enamored with her. Yeah, but she had the respect of her teacher from day one. Yeah, when she started to have like the, her mini meltdown in class, her teacher was like, you're having a break from self-confidence right now. Like, you're okay. This is a solid idea. Do not lose this. You're like worth it. So I th- feel like her teacher was on her side from the get-go. Yeah. So that's why I think like Ellie's not going to go down that path. Because, like, she already has, like, these support structures and people who, are, like, generally love her more more than, like, Sandy. Sandy just seems like she moved... I don't know if Sandy grew up in London or she... Or similar to Ellie. Like, she's also, like, a kind of, like, a country doormouse kind of, kind of character. But she was obviously alone. There's a lot about this movie that I just sort of felt like nothing has changed. We're all doomed. It sort of it sort of overwhelmed me a little bit. It's just so nihilistic. I love it. <laughs> I know it is. But I, I like like that's sort of how I felt about it though. Like we've changed, but we haven't changed that much. And I, it it is what it is. But I think that that's what makes it great. You know. And then those fucking end credits, man. Jesus Christ. He doesn't try to come after you with like extra jump scares. None of that crap. Instead, he alternates between like these like really vacant shots of London and the credits. And I learned that he shot those during the pandemic when everything was completely deserted, which is horrifying. I think like the only comparable thing is like the opening scene of like 28 Days Later. That was honestly, honestly, the end credits were more haunting than anything that he showed us in that film. Like that was scary as shit. (laughs) (laughs) That scared me to my core. Thanks a lot, Edgar fucking Wright. You're a genius. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what's my favorite piece of trivia about this movie? Tell me. So... George Miller saw an early cut of this movie and he was so enamored with Anya Taylor-Joy's performance. And because of this film, he approached Anya and gave her the role of Furiosa uh, for the prequel film that they're filming right now. Holy fuck. Okay. It's pretty dope. Thanks, Edgar Wright. Although, although I still, I still love you, Shalice Theron. I still love you. (laughs) Come back. (laughs) Okay, now I'm going to get annoying because now I want to talk about the giallo of it all, if you will. No, you're not annoying. We talked about this. Is, this is class is in session. You made me sound so pretentious when you say that. <laughs> now we're going to, you know, take our books, take out your textbooks, page 23. <laughs> Buckle in, asshole. No, I'm kidding. So, okay. So this is a, I was saving this. So this is a really great uh, interview that was with Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson Cairns. Carnes? Oh, the, the the co-writer of the script? Yeah. So in this, the first thing that they start off with is Last Night in Soho could be described as the most expensive giallo ever made. Can you talk about what giallo means to you and how you brought that to your film? Oh, wait. Uh, before you... Before you what, what, what article is this from? This is from Rue Morgue magazine where they sat down with the two of them and... I, I'll, I'll include the link in our show notes so everyone can read this. It was great. I especially think that the blood spatter was a nice touch. And the picture that they used is so haunting, and it is exactly out of a Giallo movie, which I haven't even talked about yet. It's it's the whole uh, stabbing sequence that happens after the Halloween party that they went to. That is right out of a Giallo movie. It was so, oh, it was so good. Also, the red and blue lighting. Oh, so good. Can you talk about what Giallo means to you and how you brought that to your film? Okay. Wright says, I've always enjoyed that genre. I found it really entertaining throughout my life. Probably the first one I saw as a teenager. The first ones I saw as a teenager were... 
the bird with the crystal plumage, and then deep red. I think deep red is actually the best of them all, in fact. Suspiria is fantastic, but I believe Deep Red is Dario Argento's best movie. Maybe because the story is just brilliant. I read this and I was like, so Chris will love this when I show it to him right off the bat because Edgar Ray told him to and it's fine. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> um, and over the years, I've gone on a deeper and deeper dive of trying to watch all of them. But in a way, with this movie, I was sort of going backwards, being just as inspired by the movies that inspired them. I'd say that the Italian Giallo movement is their interpretation of movies by Alfred Hitchcock or Michael Powell, which is 100% accurate. So in writing this, I was looking back more at the inspirations for that movement, some of which are British films. Which you and I even said that some of some of the Giallo movies can be compared to like the modern American slasher and British hammer horror, which I feel like so, so much. But then Christy even turns around and says, I suppose I had seen some of them at film school, late nights at the cinema watching them, though it wasn't until I, I was starting this work with Edgar and a stack of DVDs as tall as I am arrived at my house that I truly understood what they were all about. Deep Red is obviously fantastic. But yeah, like Edgar said, the real inspiration, I suppose, is those earlier psychological thrillers. So I'm reading all of this and I, while I was reading this, I immediately was like, fuck, I fucked up. I, I, sh I fucked up. I fucked up. Should have done. There are uh, there are at least four other movies that we could have done before I showed you Suspiria. Uh, two things jump out to me from this from this. Uh, well, one, the bird with the crystal plumage. When I was texting Uri about the giant twist at the end, where it wasn't actually Matt Smith's character Jack that kills Sandy, it's the other way around. There's this very similar twist in the bird with the crystal plumage, where like the one of the female protagonists appears to have been killed, but she she's also a killer. So that, that's like a straight up homage. And two, Thomason. Or, or the actress who plays Ellie was given like 50 films from Edgar Wright to study up. And ironically, the one movie that she didn't get to, even though it is clearly a huge influence, is she didn't end up watching Suspiria. The irony. The irony. God. Oh my god, that is, I, I laughed that. so, I laughed so hard when I read that piece of trivia, I, I was like, oh, Thomason. That is so fucking funny. <laughs> Maybe I should have just had you watch everything but Suspiria. <laughs> I mean, we, we could have, we could have, no, we just threw him into the pool. <laughs> I did, I made a mistake, I've said it, all right. When we inevitably finish out our, our season, buckle down, uh, we'll, we'll go back on our traditional holiday hiatus. When we come back, I'm going to do it right. We're going to go back to Bava. We're going to do different Argento movies. And we'll just sprinkle it in and we'll see how you feel. And then we'll deal with Suspiria. Yeah. But we're not touching Suspiria for a very long time. One year later. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I have a question. Have you watched Deep Red? Yes. You, would you would you say it's a hundred percent like the worth the hype? Like Fuck okay, yes. cool. Yes. Awesome. Uh, Bay of Blood, uh, Bird of the Crystal Plumage, Deep Red, definitely. And then there was one other, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which evidently a lot of people consider to be the the first Giallo, not 
Blood and Black Lace. Mm-hmm. Those, those are all movies I probably should have showed you. <laughs> <laughs> nah, Chris will be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm crying. I'm laughing so hard. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then you're like, that motherfucker Chris loves Last Night in Soho. I said that. But doesn't that, love Suspiria. I said that verbatim to Tom. <laughs> While I walked away to come record this episode, I said, this motherfucker loves this movie, but doesn't this, like Suspiria. This guy comes <laughs> to guy my house and my loves Edgar Wright more than Suspiria and Argento. What the audacity. I love it. I'm actually crying. <laughs> Uh, I'm actually crying right now. Oh my god. Sorry, Jed Fulls. Rise literally crying right now. <laughs> uh, good times. Thank you, Edgar Wright. Thank you for this wonderful gift that you're just giving us over and over again. You should just tweet him. Just be like, by the way. And just tweet him like thank you. <laughs> no context. Thank you. Thank you. If he watch not that he would, but if he ever tweeted back, may I ask what this is in reference to? Last night in Soho, period. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Ah. Uh, goodness. Goodness. Oh my god, I haven't laughed that hard in a really long time. That feels good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'll say this for the last time. Go fuck yourself, Chris, because you love this hey, movie. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I would watch this movie again and again, though. Like, I totally understand yes. where he was coming from with this. I think it's amazing. I love it. So good. And now I just really want to go back and watch Suspiria again and then just, like, watch all the Italian <laughs> Giallo movies. It's really what I'm in the mood to do right now. I, I could totally see you, like... One month later, Chris, like you just text me out of the blue and you send me this link and it's like a YouTube breakdown of this entire of like a play by play of every single like specific Giala influence on on Soho. And and and, and the the, fir- the title card is Chris, you will you should love Giallo. <laughs> Uh, because of xyz chris out here thinking i'm gonna make him a goddamn slideshow about why he should love giallo movies <laughs> yes this is a powerpoint <laughs> presentation about why you're wrong uh, and why you're wrong about, about suspiria why your opinion is trash and you should take it <laughs> and then you get like edgar wright you just you, you, you have edgar wright on a zoom call he's like hey chris i have someone very special to talk to you Cause you have a problem, and you need a you need to seek professional help, and you have you have Edgar Wright on the phone, and <laughs> and Edgar Wright is gonna give me a stern talking to. Just telling you why you're wrong. About <laughs> why I'm wrong. Uh, this episode went off the rails. I love it. Hi, dreadfuls. <laughs> final final thoughts. I love Edgar Wright, and this film is is awesome. I want see him do more like this like more horror or more thriller yeah more horror if if he wants to if he wants it to be giallo influenced great if not also great don't care i wanna i want to see him do more more thriller more horror i think he has a really special and unique eye for it that we kind of need right now i completely agree like Edgar Wright is just, I think like in terms of our modern directors, like visionary directors, you know, it's like Edgar Wright, Taika Waititi. Oh, that man, Taika Waititi, that man. I don't know. I don't have a third one to come up with, but those two, at least those two. I mean, this movie's perfect. 
it, it was great. Five out of six out of five uh, ghosts. It was awesome. I give it six out of five ghosts too. I think this was absolutely fucking incredible. Despite how playfully angry I am at Chris, I'm not actually mad at him. <laughs> I just thought it was hilarious <laughs> that I was like, I was watching this and I was seeing all of it and I was like, how come this? And I, honestly, I, th- I do think a lot of the reason why Chris didn't like Suspiria is I fully blame myself. I, I did it too fast. It was too much too fast. We should have done a little bit more Bava, different Argento. It was my fault. I was very excited. I was so excited about how much he enjoyed Bava that I was like, fuck it, we're just gonna rip the band-aid off. That being said, you enjoyed this. I think we'll get there. I will say I am legitimately interested in the bird with the crystal plumage and deep red. I'll watch that any fucking time. You know that. I'll put it on the docket for next year right fucking now. For next year. (laughs) Because we have our... Okay, look. You know, as as everyone heard last episode, I am not shy about changing our lineup. I did it mid-episode. That was very... I'm not kidding you. That was real. I, I was so funny. I was cracking up. Chris forgot I changed it. Le- legitimately this week, I was like, wait, are we recording like, Suspiria again? It's like, no, no Suspiria. I was like, okay. <laughs> no, no Suspiria. I changed it. That was real. He thought I was... I was not fucking around. That was real. I am not beyond changing something mid-schedule that being said i'm kind of obsessed with her halloween lineup our october lineup our lineup is very good unless we have to i love our lineup especially because one of them is a movie that you haven't seen and i have and i can't wait to hear what you think about it so i i'm obsessed with our october lineup which is why i say i'm going to put it on the docket for next year because we're really really uh, like solidly obsessed with our october lineup that's why you're not gonna hear about it until next year. And then, and then next year, every week is gonna be a Giallo film. <laughs> every a full fifty-two weeks of Giallo. I won't do that to you. It won't be every week. I promise. It'll be every other week. Okay. It'll be every, okay. Every, like every, every <laughs> other week, every two weeks, it'll be fine. But yeah, I I definitely want to start sprinkling some more Italian horror back in there. Uh, we have a couple of movies for next year like already lined up my friend Liv texted me and she was like oh yeah that's really angrily tweeting about this movie can you do this on the podcast and i was like absolutely so that's already on there i'm excited yes i'm excited because the movie was polarizing and it, it, it divided a lot of people so like we're here for that tea i want it i'm so here for shit like that so i'm really excited But on top of that, a friend of ours listened to our Suspiria episode, DM'd me on Facebook and said, it was Ben. Oh, it was Ben? Turned around and said to me, I kind of want to watch Suspiria now. I was like, yes! (laughs) Winner! Also, for, for, for context, our friend Ben is very much on the record, not a horror fan. Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. Even though he plays in our Curse of Strahd gothic horror campaign. And he's like, "That that's huge. I love it. Uh, while I was talking to him, he goes, I'm finally watching Crimson Peak, which has been in my Netflix queue since 2017. So let me know when you guys do an episode on that. And I was like, we did it already. I'm sorry. You know how I feel about Crimson Peak. But I said to him, I was like, look. We already did an episode on that. Love that you're watching it. But literally any time you want... I know he doesn't like horror, but like any time you want to be on an episode, yes, obviously. And and then 
he said something to me about like the gothic element of everything and oh he said I crave gothic horror like this, but with a cyberpunk element. So I said, I said, so Dracula 2000? Yes. Goes, I've never seen it. Yes. I've never seen it. So I said, it's so bad. It's good. I was like, it's Gerard Butler is Dracula. And he goes, careful. You might end up getting me interested in horror. So there you go. I, I shared all that all out. Oh, don't, don't tempt me with a good time. <laughs> That's what I said. I said, don't tempt me. I'll give you a list. Like, yeah. Can we do Dracula 2000? That would be awesome. I want it, we should do it. We should do it. <laughs> I'll put it on the docket for I love year, I love me I love me sci-fi horror. Let's go. There. It's all it's all happening right now. You know what, Ben, if you're listening to this right now, we haven't done a lot of anime films, but we haven't done a lot of anime in general. I mean, we did we did Juji Ito, we did the the prequel. We could be on the Junji Ito episode, you know. We could. Um, we also did the prequel to train to busan soul station um there's a hundred percent an anime or specifically anime movie i think you would love ben it's called vampire hunter d bloodlust so so like it is it is i've seen that holy shit oh my god right i've watched that movie so many times and it 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 clearly has an inspiration on our stride campaign and there is it's like but it is it is a futuristic earth where it is both archaic and futuristic where like the, the entire world is ruled by monsters and like the cyber where the cyber pe- cyberpunk elements come in is like there's a floating space station that looks like a gothic cathedral and it's awesome and it's like so we, we should watch it i think i think all of us would like that very much on that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Our amazing new cover art is by Liz Van Hootie. Our intro and outro music is from Epidemic Sound. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every other Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook. And you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. And, and, and finally, finally, finally... Don't forget to check out our merch at tpublic.com. The link is in our bio. And uh, and dreadfuls, when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise in the hurry seems to know, I know, downtown. Just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are... So much brighter there. You can forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No finer place for sure. Downtown. Everyone's waiting for you. No, 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 no!